0: Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me Chris Smith and also with Kate Lamble. Hello Kate.
1: Hello and this week, why penguins can't fly, how cockroaches avoid stumbling into sugary traps and we go all green-fingered to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Chelsea Flower Show.
0: And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist then email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can of course look us up on Facebook.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
0: And up first, time now for our news headlines. And kicking us off, Kate. Biologists think they've worked out why penguins can't fly. It's yeah, they swim, isn't it?
1: I've always been fascinated as to why penguins can't fly, but luckily, Carl Elliott and his team from the University of Manitoba in Canada have been looking into it for me. So flight is this adaptive trait, and penguins' ancestors used to be able to fly, but over time, they've lost the ability to do it. And we always thought this was because penguins don't have a lot of predators around, there aren't many polar bears hanging out in the, in the South Pole, and, or, although cartoons would tell us otherwise, and there's not a lot of food around. So scientists thought that maybe penguins had to expend all their energy trying to uh, for food. But penguins also have to travel huge distances between their breeding and feeding grounds, and it'd be a lot easier to fly there rather than just sort of waddling about over thick ice. And also, other seabeds that have a lot of food around, some of them are still flightless as well. So they figured there's got to be another reason why they've evolved over time not to be able to fly. And this team decided that there, there might be a trade off of adaptability between being able to fly really well and being able to dive really well. And if you maybe you go too far in one direction, then the energy expenditure required to do the other one is too high and you lose
0: it. So is this a sort of modelling study... Uh, as in they looked at the birds and then looked at different behaviours and asked "Well, how much energy would each involve?
1: Well they actually looked at two different types of seabirds, both of which have flight. There's one called thick-billed mirrors, which use their wings to propel themselves underwater when they're looking for food, and one called pelagic cormorants, which use their feet to propel themselves underwater. And they figured that um, if, this, if their theory was right, then the, the ones that use their wings to do it underwater would have a lot more energy expenditure when they were flying. Because if you think about how birds go under the sea, in order to adapt yourself to fly underwater sort of as you're diving you have to reduce your wingspan and increase the number of bones that are going on your wings increase your body mass and also change the way your muscles move because if you're floating around underwater you sort of flap about quite slowly and so when you fly it'd be a lot more difficult and it would cost you a lot more energy and it turns out that they were right. These thick-billed murres, which use their wings underwater, when they're flying, they use 31 times their resting metabolic rate. That's really, really high. Most vertebrates don't use more than 25 times their resting rate when they're doing really intensive exercise. So it's really hard for them to do both at the same time.
0: And so the implication would be, based on the findings in the birds this is what's forced penguins to go down the particular evolutionary line they have and surrender flight in favour of just swimming really well.
1: Yeah, there's this fitness valley that they've come up with between the two that if you're really, really specialised, you sort of lose the ability over time to do it. And what they think is when you look at flightless cormorants and things like that, they're a lot further along, uh, further behind the evolutionary tree than penguins. So penguins have these sort of little flipper-like things that have started to look like whale's fins, whereas other birds still have the full wings. So they sort of, they're at different stages in the evolutionary tree but they've used the same reason to get there.
0: Well, I'm glad that they were able to scratch that scientific itch for you, Kate. And on that, very tenuously, yeah. this actually is wonderful because scientists have actually uncovered the neurological basis of itch. We now know what the nerves are that convey itch sensations in the body. Now, we've known for a long time that itching is a nerve sensation. There must be itch-specific nerves in the body, but no one actually knew what they were because the problem is they they appear to be indistinguishable at least until now from the nerve cells that convey pain and temperature sensations but in the journal science this week santos mishra and mark hoon who are two researchers at the national institute of dental and craniofacial research in bethesda maryland have cracked it what they did was clever so they looked in nerve cells which we couldn't tell whether they were itch or just pain and temperature nerves. And they said, if some of these cells are doing something different, i.e. they're signalling itch sensations, they must have some genes turned on in them that the cells that don't convey itch haven't got. So they compared the genes that were being expressed in these nerve cells and they found a small subpopulation which had a gene which is called NPPB and that stands for natriuretic polypeptide B, that's why they call it NPPB largely and it's turned on in these cells so then the obvious question is well is this the one which subserves itch so they do some very elegant experiments where they knock out this gene in mice and the mice become resistant to the things that would normally have us scratching ourselves to death and then they also couple this chemical to a toxin and inject it and the idea is that then it will go on to the cells that these itch sensitive nerve cells normally talk to and turn those off as well and in this way they've disentangled the itch pathway and we now know what the nerve cells are that convey itch we can identify them and we know that they talk to second groups of nerve cells in the spinal cord and those ones then talk to the brain to pass on the itch sensation.
1: So they've taken the Sherlock Holmes approach whatever's left must be the answer so now that they understand how these itch receptors work are they able to use it for diseases like eczema where you get really really itchy and I've seen some of my friends sort of scratch themselves till they're bleeding is there anything that can be done to switch that itch off for them?
0: Yes this does sound initially when you say oh it's just an itch sensitive nerve cell a bit trivial but actually Chronic pruritus, which is what people who have eczema suffer from, is absolutely excruciating. If you think how itchy your eyes get if you have hay fever, for example, or how tickly your nose is when you breathe in some dust, imagine having that all over your body all the time. It is excruciating and frustrating in the extreme so a way of solving this would be extremely valuable for sufferers so yes if we could block this pathway that would be wonderful now the problem is that as the name suggests natriuretic polypeptide b careful listeners will have realized that there's some words in there that probably relates to diuresis and sodium and actually this same chemical is used to control the levels of sodium in the blood in the kidney and If you deactivate this chemical, then it can have impacts on the way the kidney works and on blood pressure. So although the pharmaceutical company have already got there, and there are drugs on the market, uh, at least in tests and trials, that will block this stuff, you couldn't use them as an itch treatment because they would have devastating effects on people's other physiological processes so instead what Mark Kuhn is saying and I phoned him up and spoke to him today is that we'll have to find some other drug that is nerve cell selective and if we could do that and block this pathway then you've got a way of cracking the itch nut
1: so we've got a difficult task ahead Um, I've been having a look at another news story which is all about a little boy called Kyber Gianfredo. and when he was born he suffered from this condition called tracheobronchomalacia now this is a condition that affects your trachea and that's the strong cartilage tube that connects your larynx or your voice box to your lungs and the point of this trachea is really to be very very strong and to keep your airway open but if you suffer from this condition the cartilage becomes flaccid it can collapse in on itself so this little boy kyber he was having a bit of problems that he was regularly stopping breathing they were having to resuscitate him every day so it was at this point that glenn green and his colleagues at the university of michigan decided to step in they decided to use 3d printing to print a plastic tracheal splint so that's a little plastic round tube that they could fit in the trachea to stop it collapsing in on itself but instead of just using plastic so it would sit there forever and maybe the body would react to it they used a very clever substance called polycalprolactine now that's a biodegradable polyester which within the body if you leave it within a human within about three years it goes under hydrolysis and it degrades and is reabsorbed into the body so they put this in kyber in february 2012 so it was a while ago now and straight after the operation he was able to come off the ventilator within 21 days and he's not had any trouble since then they've just published the paper in the new england journal of medicine this week and so what's great about this new substance, it means not only is it able to solve the problem in the short term, because hopefully over the next three years, trachea will be able to grow and become healthy again. But also because it's going to be reabsorbed, that little plastic tube isn't going to be sitting there years later on blocking his airway.
0: Very encouraging. It'd be interesting to see what the long term is, whether his own trachea fully recovers or whether he needs another one of these printed, albeit slightly larger, because he'll have hopefully grown a little bit by then.
1: Well, this condition affects one in every around 2,000 children and most kids grow out of it quite quickly. So the the hope is quite positive. Only about 10% of cases are very serious. So fingers crossed.
0: Well, let's... uh Talk about something slightly less salubrious now. I know that you're probably very fond of these insects, Kate. Do you like cockroaches?
1: I hate them. You've actually got me scanning the room to see if any are around.
0: Well, you may have actually noticed how, at the moment, we try to get rid of them, which is... Traps. Have you seen those cockroach traps? And they're sort of usually a a card affair with some holes in the side. It's like a a tent made of card. Mm -hmm. And if you were to stick a finger in one of the holes in the side, you find this sticky stuff on the inside. And these traps, effectively, are a sticky sugar solution with insecticide inside it and the idea is that the cockroaches really like the sugar they go for that they go in the holes they drink some sugar and get a dose of insecticide into the bargain and then they die the thing is that despite being very successful when they were first deployed 30 years ago or so these traps aren't working very well anymore the cockroaches appear to be avoiding them And now we know why. There's a paper, it's also in the Journal Science this week, Kobe Schaal and his colleagues, they're at the North Carolina State University. And they have found that the cockroaches have evolved to find the taste of the glucose in the trap highly unappealing. So what they do is they've got some cockroaches... And they take the taste buds of cockroaches and they stick miniature electrodes in them and they record the electrical activity of the cockroach taste buds when they present different chemicals to them. And there are four different types of cockroach taste bud, it turns out. There's so-called GRN1 which is gustatory receptor neuron 1. That one responds to sweet stuff like glucose and fructose and sure enough, when you give the taste bud some sugar solution, the nerve cells there go firing off like a machine gun. Then there's the GRN2 or gustatory receptor n- neuron two that's the sort of taste bud number two that one responds to bitter substances like caffeine for example and again you put some caffeine on this goes firing off like a machine gun three and four they don't know exactly what they do yet but when they take the cockroaches that avoid these traps and they look at their taste buds amazingly what you find is that the taste bud type one which normally responds to sweet stuff put glucose on there It's not interested. Take the type 2 taste bud that normally responds to bitter things like caffeine. Yes, it responds to caffeine, but put some sugar on it and it fires off like crazy. And so basically these cockroaches have rewired their taste buds so that they are now responding to using the aversive taste buds, the things that would normally put them off of eating things, to, to, to respond to glucose so effectively they have mutated their taste bud system so that something they previously found very appealing they now find highly unappealing and this is why they're avoiding the traps and when they went and caught some cockroaches in the wild they caught 19 cockroaches and seven of them had this trait.
1: I'm very proud of myself for not just standing on my chair right now so what can we do to overcome this and, and start killing them again?
0: Well the good news is that the effect was specific for glucose because the taste receptors respond to both glucose and fructose and the aversive response the uh, cockroaches that no longer respond that they're only doing that to glucose so fructose would still work so maybe what the manufacturers need to do is to start using fructose another kind of sugar in the traps instead of glucose and they'll probably start working again
1: great and you can find more information including references to the papers we've just discussed on our website at thenakedscientistcom forward slash news now you might have heard that tragedy struck Oklahoma this week when a massive tornado at least a mile wide ripped through the town of Moore, injuring 353 and leaving at least 24 people dead. To find out how these destructive forces of nature develop, here's your quickfire science from Elena Tay and Pete Skidmore.
2: A tornado is a rapidly rotating column of air, which descends from the base of a thunderstorm cloud down to the ground.
3: The most powerful tornadoes often form underneath large rotating thunderstorms called supercells.
2: There are several theories about how tornadoes form under a supercell, but one possible way is from wind shear. This is when winds at two different heights blow in different directions or at different speeds.
3: The clash between these two winds can cause a cylinder of air to rotate around a horizontal axis, which can then be tilted vertically towards the ground by warm air rising within the thunderstorm.
2: Given the right conditions, this vertical spinning cylinder of air can become a tornado.
3: Tornadoes occur all over the world, but most commonly form in North America, especially in the central plains of the United States, nicknamed Tornado Alley.
2: Scientists think they are so frequent here because warm rising air from the Gulf of Mexico is focused into thunderstorms by cool, dry air from Canada. Dry winds blowing east from the Rocky Mountains provide the wind shear which drives the rotation of the storms.
3: Modern methods of detecting tornadoes include using satellite data as well as radar to identify high wind speeds.
2: The US National Weather Service's Storm Prediction Centre uses these new techniques, as well as a network of voluntary storm spotters across the country, to provide a tornado warning system to communities at risk.
3: Warnings for Monday's disaster in Oklahoma were sent out 16 minutes before the twister hit the ground, earlier than the average time of 8 to 10 minutes.
2: The strength of a tornado is measured from 1 to 5 on the Enhanced Fujita Scale, which looks at the amount of damage caused to structures.
3: The Oklahoma tornado had an Enhanced Fujita score of 5, the most powerful rating, with wind speeds of over 200 miles per hour, giving it the power to sweep away strong buildings and overturn cars.
0: Elena Tay and Pete Skidmore. And this is The Naked Scientist with Kate Lamble and with me, Chris Smith.
1: Now this year marks the 100th anniversary of the Chelsea Flower Show so this week we're going all green-fingered with a look at the latest breakthroughs in the field of plant sciences.
0: And this week researchers from Germany and the UK have identified the pathogen that caused the Irish potato famine which killed a million people in the mid-19th century. and Camoon heads the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich where this work was carried out.
4: We knew that the pathogen called Phytophthora infestans, a fungus-like organism, uh, was the agent of the potato blight that caused so much havoc in the 19th century and essentially triggered the Irish potato famine. What we didn't know is which strain caused the disease at the time. So what we did is we went back to herbarium specimens from museums, uh, extracted DNA from those specimens, And we were able, using the latest DNA technology, to sequence the genome of the pathogen and identify the strain that that caused the disease in the 19th century.
0: I'm intrigued to think that people kept leaf specimens from affected plants from more than 150 years ago.
4: Oh no, there's a lot of interesting hidden treasures in all these museums. There's uh, millions of herbarium samples uh, in in museums uh, and that are studied usually to identify the species um, by looking, for instance, at flowers and the morphology of the leaves and so on. Uh, but in this case, we were able to do something uh, quite cool with it. We were able to actually look at the genetic makeup of the uh, organisms that were in those leaves. So you ground up some of the samples
0: of leaves and extracted genetic material, which would have included both the genetic material of the potato and the genetic material of the blight that killed the plant.
4: Yes, exactly. So we cut a small piece of, of the leaf and, and we were able to analyse both the plant and the pathogen. And in this case, in this study, we focused on the pathogen. That was the interesting bit.
0: But people have, as you say, known that this was a fungus that was knocking around that did this. So what was the, the big question that needed to be answered here then, that, that your research has enabled us to, to fill in a missing gap with?
4: Well, first of all, you know, it's not a fungus. It's a fungus-like organism, so I'm correcting you, sorry about that, but it's a different type of uh, microbe. Uh, But it does look like a fungus, so often people refer to it as a fungus. There are many strains of this pathogen. Uh, What we discovered was that it's a new strain, uh, we called it Herb 1, that caused the uh, blight in the 19th century, and this strain apparently is gone. It's it's, it's not around anymore.
0: Why do you think that is? Is it that it was so good at devastating potato plants that, as a result, people just stopped growing susceptible species and it ran out of plants to infect?
4: No, we don't think so. What probably happened is that as potato breeding started and took off in the 20th century and scientists started breeding uh, better potatoes by crossing them to wild relatives of the potato, probably herb one was at a disadvantage compared to other strains. And we know that in the 20th century herb one was replaced by another strain, uh, we we know as US1 and, and then later on in the 20th century US1 was replaced by additional strains.
0: So is the sort of model then that you have plants that are susceptible to one of these organisms the organism becomes more successful at working its way through those plants and then the plants change or new types of plant come along which are more resistant and so the pathogen changes and we're just seeing a sort of arms race playing out.
4: That's certainly part of the equation, but in fact what's amazing about this pathogen, Phytophthora infestans, the potato blight pathogen, is how adaptable it is. It's very good at adapting to new resistant varieties that breeders are releasing.
0: How does it do that? What makes it so successful?
4: Well, this is actually work we've been describing in the last few years, and we discovered that this pathogen has an amazing genome. In fact, we describe this genome as a two-speed genome. It's composed of two different types of compartments, if you like. One compartment contains the housekeeping genes, the, the key gene, the pathogen, needs to be a microbe. And the second set of compartments contains all the virulence genes that are important for the pathogen to infect plants. And that second compartment is evolving and changing much more rapidly than the the slow-evolving housekeeping compartment, if you like.
0: Do you know why those bits of the genome change so fast, whereas bits elsewhere in the genome don't? How does the organism do that?
4: I wish I knew why. That's a very interesting topic we're studying.
0: Because a similar sort of story is playing out with bananas, isn't it? Um, we know that bananas are cloned plants, so they're all genetically identical. So all it takes is one type of fungus organism to come along, which is very good at exploiting one of these plants. And then all of a sudden, all banana plants of that particular type are going to be susceptible because they're all cloned.
4: That, that's an interesting point. This is one of the issues with uh, modern agriculture is having monocultures in the case of the banana it's the most extreme case because we all all those bananas we eat are, have the exact same genetic makeup so this makes these plants very susceptible to, to pathogens, especially pathogens that are very good at adapting and, and evolving and dealing with with uh, these crops. So the challenge really for us as plant breeders and plant biotechnologists is how can we generate enough variation enough new varieties, to really keep up with these rapidly evolving pathogens.
0: So why did the Irish potato blight happen when it did? Do we have an insight into what caused this perfect storm and why doesn't it happen now?
4: Well, there's two facets to your question. The first one is that uh, we have to keep in mind that in the 1840s, the disease was new to Europe. So uh, for three centuries, potatoes were cultivated in Europe and somehow the pathogen never made it to the european continent so in that case it was basically a new pathogen being introduced to region that doesn't have it that hasn't seen it before it's similar to what we're seeing today with the ash dieback fungus for instance which uh, showed up in the uk recently and essentially has has all these susceptible trees to infect so that's what happened at the time. It it didn't really uh, require a particularly aggressive pathogen. Uh, the potatoes were susceptible and the pathogen took off like wildfire.
0: Arguably, there are lots more potatoes around now that fall into that camp than there were in the 1850s when this happened in Ireland. So why hasn't it happened now more frequently?
4: It's actually happening now. Potato blight is still a very important disease these days. Potato crop is the third most important food crop in the world. And the estimates currently are that the potatoes lost to the blight are enough to feed tens of millions of people. So it's still an important problem. The difference is now we can manage it with agricultural practices and with uh, using chemicals and occasionally some resistant varieties. So the disease is very much around. It hasn't gone.
0: Safine so Kamun, he published that work this week in the journal E-Life.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Lamble, and with Chris Smith.
0: Sophia might be identifying pathogens from the past to help to protect the crops of today, but others are going a step further and using ancient plant strains to help to improve our current varieties.
1: Junie Smith visited the Innovation Farm run by the National Institute of Agricultural Botany in Impington, Cambridgeshire to find out about a new strain of wheat they've developed using this technique.
5: So I've come to Innovation Farm to talk to Dr. Phil Howell about a special type of wheat he's breeding. So what exactly is it that you work on?
6: We're trying to move some of the genes from the wild ancestors of wheat into modern wheat varieties.
5: And why is that important?
6: During the domestication of any crop, there is inevitably a useful variation that's, that's thrown away as, as the farmers select what they want to take forwards. Wheat's a complex beast. It has three sets of chromosomes. It's called a a hexaploid and we know that two of those sets came from one ancient parent and a third set came from a different ancient parent and it's this third set that there's less variation in so that's what we're trying to, to tap into.
5: And why is wheat so important? Why have you focused on
6: it? It's the UK's most widely grown crop so it's grown on about 40% Forty percent of the UK's arable land, and it's you know it's in so many foodstuffs. Wow. We're also moving into a situation where the world population is increasing all the time. There is all sorts of pressure on agricultural land. There's, um, I mean, as you can see if you look out the window, some of our trial fields are being built on. So there's this pressure from housing development, even here in Cambridge. If there's less agricultural land available, we need to be getting as much as we possibly can out of the out of the land.
5: And why is less variation bad?
6: It means that there is just uh, less raw material, if you like, for plant breeders to get their teeth into. And one set of genes in wheat in particular, there's very little variation in modern varieties. So we're trying to put some variation back in. That will then help commercial breeders to solve problems that we, we don't even know exist yet. So it might be new diseases It might be things caused by climate change. You can never tell what the future is going to bring.
5: And how do you go about introducing this variation?
6: There's an international research place in Mexico called CIMIT. So we took some of their synthetic exploits and crossed them with um, UK varieties. And it works so well, we're now actually making our own synthetic exploits here as well. But um, they're not quite as far advanced.
5: So how do you actually get to this synthetic wheat? And what exactly do you mean by it?
6: Um, by synthetic, I mean it's not made out of plastic or anything, it's it's a, a living plant. How you make synthetic is you, you take a different form of wheat called durum wheat, which nowadays we make pasta from, and you cross that with a species called wild goat grass and bring in variation from this, this third set of, of chromosomes.
5: And when you say that you cross these varieties, what exactly do you mean? How do you go about doing that?
6: So when it starts to flower... We have to remove the male parts, the anthers, but you don't remove the female parts, the stigma. You you keep that there. So essentially we're turning a flower that has male and female parts into a female-only flower. We then cover it with a, a clear cellophane bag to keep any stray pollen out. And then we take an ear from what we're using as our male. So in a normal cross it would be another wheat variety. When we make synthetics, this is the wild goat grass And we introduce the pollen and it trickles down. You can actually see it floating down like yellow powder. um, Lands on the female parts and hopefully fertilisation happens.
5: Now this sounds like quite an old-fashioned way of of crossing things. Is there not more modern ways you can do this, genetically modifying things or something like that?
6: It does seem old-fashioned, but old-fashioned things can work very well so the cross itself is as you say is the way plant breeders have been crossing for you know 100 years or so the tissue culture is a bit more cutting edge so if we let the seed develop by itself because we've crossed two different species together the pasta wheat and the goat grass normally the seed would just shrivel up it doesn't have the food supply the flour inside the seed so that's why we have to open the seed up remove the embryo and give it some food from the petri dish
5: OK, so we've now headed down to your lab, and there's lots of big machines. You can hear the sort of humming in the background. And I can see some petri dishes and microscopes over there. It looks like properly scientific area over there.
6: Petri dishes we can certainly have a look at.
5: So I can see some seeds on these petri dishes. They're a kind of reddish colour, and some of them have little sprouty bits coming out of them. Oh, and some of these others, they look a bit more like you'd expect a wheat seed to look, sort of like unpopped popcorn. And again, some of those are sprouting. So what's the difference between these two kinds of seed?
6: The ones which were in red, these are actually a commercial variety, and we're just, we call it pre-germinating. So we're trying to get them so that they they break dormancy and they germinate. Sometimes if it's old seed, you have to try a bit harder to get it to germinate, and that's what we're doing here. The red colour is actually a seed treatment, so it's a a fungicide to stop any diseases on the surface of the seed, stopping it from growing properly.
5: Okay, and do they germinate quite happily in a petri dish? I would have thought that would be a very unnatural environment for a seed.
6: Yeah, you give them a bit of water and they will, um, as you say, swell up and look like unpopped popcorn, and then you'll see the shoots start to break through and the roots start to break through. Again, some of the old seed, it can be a bit tricky to get it going, so we have little tricks like if you, if you grow them in these petri dishes and then you alternate, so they spend the night in the fridge and the day out in the warm, the night in the fridge, the day out in the warm, eventually that can get them going.
5: And what are the advantages of doing it this way versus something like genetic modification?
6: GM is a very focused, targeted technology, so you normally have a particular gene of interest that you want to transfer from one one plant to another plant. Here we're bringing the whole lot across. Some of it might be useful, most of it will be absolutely rubbish. We look for what we want once we've made the cross.
5: And have you found any benefits so far?
6: We've seen some interesting results suggesting that if you put much less fertiliser on these crops than conventional wheat varieties, the yield doesn't drop off as much as you expect. So again, that suggests that the root system is more active. They're better at scavenging the little nitrogen that you've added.
5: Are there going to be any negative environmental connotations to this sort of thing? If goat grass is a weed, could we see wheat running rampage through our forests and fields and overtaking hedgerows and that sort of thing?
6: Becoming a superweed. I really hope not, because it's not the goat grass itself that we're putting into the field. And... Even if some of the goat grass characteristics are transferred into modern varieties, we're still doing selective breeding. We're not just moving everything forwards. We're taking, hopefully, the best of both worlds.
1: Phil Howell from Innovation Farm, ending that report by Ginny Smith.
0: We humans have body clocks or circadian rhythms that control when we wake up, when we go to sleep, and even how hungry we feel. It's why we succumb to jet lag, effectively, when we go overseas – plants also though have daily rhythms that affect the way they grow and also how they transport nutrients and to find out how these come about kate spoke to alex webb from the department of plant sciences at cambridge university and she started by asking him exactly what a circadian rhythm is
7: is any biological rhythm that has a period of 24 hours and which can persist in constant conditions so the one we're most familiar with is the sleep-wake cycle So
1: in me, it changes how awake I am and when I'm awake. What does it change in plants?
7: Oh, well, it regulates nearly every aspect of plant biology. The one that I quite like to tell people about is, in fact, that plants grow over 24-hour cycle. So just like you and me, actually, plants do their maximal growth at the end of the night. It regulates photosynthesis. It regulates water flux through the plant. It regulates their ability to sense the environment. So plants are more sensitive to cold signals during the day than they are at night and all aspects of plant biology.
1: When I'm aware of sort of how much light is around, I've got this environmental stimuli that I can see. How do plants recognize the environmental time signals that tell them when it's day and when it's night?
7: Ah, Now you ask a difficult question. We know that they measure both temperature and light, and we know that they measure the rhythms of temperature and light, and plants measure light using a series of proteins we call photoreceptors. There's a subset for red and a subset for blue. And we know that those are involved in setting the clock. So for example, the clock is reset every morning by blue and red light signals. But actually how that happens, we don't know. And then when it comes to temperature perception by plants, we know that they can measure temperature, they can exquisitely measure temperature, but we have very little idea how that works. And we know that they can in fact incorporate that temperature measurement into adjusting the clock.
1: Now, my circadian rhythm is controlled by my brain, but what is a plant's circadian rhythm controlled by?
7: Well, what an interesting idea. Is your circadian rhythm controlled by your brain? Or is there a circadian rhythm in your brain that controls all of you?
1: That's a very interesting question.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is probably the second of the two. How it works in mammals like ourselves is that there's a group of nerves, about 20,000 nerves in the brain, which form the timing mechanism and they have this 24-hour rhythmic activity, which they then transmit through to the rest of the organism using hormones. Plants are a much more decentralized system. And so, in fact, every cell has a clock. And that clock is made up of a suite of genes switching each other on and off with a rhythm, a bit like the clockwork of an old-fashioned watch. And so all of these cells have a clock. And one of the things we're interested in at the moment, I think a lot of plant biologists are interested in, is whether these clocks actually communicate between each other within the cells and is there a coordination between them or is essentially each cell doing its own thing, but it just all occurs at the same time.
1: I was going to ask that, because in order to be able to reset the clock, is each one of those cells communicating with a sensor that is sensing the light and the temperature that we were talking about earlier? At
7: least in leaf cells, each cell has its own light sensor, so these proteins are present in all the leaf cells. The root is more interesting, and there's a lot of interest at the moment, because of course the roots grow in the dark, and there's some nice work from a laboratory in Glasgow, Hugh Nimo's laboratory, And it does seem that there's some signal that comes from the leaves down to the roots and affects the clock, and that signal is probably sugar.
1: Why do we think that it's sugar that's communicating these signals between the different cells?
7: Well, if you stop photosynthesis using a drug, then the root circadian clock functions differently. And so the the most likely substance is sugar, and in fact, my group works on this problem as well.
1: I was going to say you're particularly interested in how photosynthesis is linked to this circadian rhythm. Why would that be affected by the difference between day and night?
7: Plants harvest light energy and they capture it using chlorophyll, and the electrons which get excited by the light energy are then used to make sugars from carbon dioxide in the air. This is a, an incredible amount of energy that moves through the plant. And if The plant isn't ready in the morning to make all the sugars and use all that energy that it harvests. That energy will go off and do other things, and most of those things it will do will be fairly destructive to the cells. So the plant needs to be ready at dawn to harvest all this light energy. So the clock seems to modulate photosynthesis so it's more active during the day.
1: If plants aren't photosynthesizing at night, how do they have enough food to keep their cells going during that period?
7: The spare sugars that are made during the day are converted to starch, and then the starch is broken down all through the night to keep the plant alive. And in fact, some wonderful experiments from the John Innis Laboratory, Alison Smith's lab in Norwich, has shown that they actually are able to anticipate when dawn is using the circadian clock and consume all their available starch right at dawn. And if you artificially extend the night by two hours, the plant begins to starve and actually cannot grow because they've consumed all of their stored energy. And so they actually anticipate when dawn is, use up all the energy that's stored at night, and then get ready to photosynthesize in the morning.
1: If we're understand it, beginning to understand the genes that control this circadian clock, can we exploit that in some way for farming?
7: Yeah, I think definitely we should be able to. Again, this this is early days. Really intensive work on the circadian clock in plants has only been going on for about 15 years. But one of the things that we've found out is that some of the genes which have been very important for the domestication of crops are actually involved in the circadian clock. So that tells us that early breeders were actually unknowingly selecting for altered behaviour of genes that form part of the clock. Now, what we don't understand mostly is Why? But there are other areas where there's really quite a large potential for agricultural exploitation of the circadian system. For example, the circadian clock of plants provides adaptation to help deter insect feeding. And so if you take plants which don't have a functional circadian clock, they are much more damaged by insects than plants that do have a functional circadian clock. Now, of course, that's a big step from that observation and then working out how we can take that observation and apply it. How can we get benefit? So mostly what we seem to be able to do at the moment is make plants worse by interfering with the circadian clock. The next step is to find ways of making them better.
1: If we're thinking about trying to change the circadian clock of certain plants, how can we go about doing that? Is it a matter of genetically modifying and putting in the genes that we know are good circadian rhythm controllers?
7: That would be one approach. There is some evidence. Monsanto have, I think it's a soybean, which has about 5% increase in yield, which is an, an enormous increase in terms of agriculture. And that is through genetic manipulation of a gene which is closely related to the circadian clock. Another approach which our lab has used is we've looked for chemicals which affect the circadian clock and we've identified one chemical which can change the speed of the circadian clock and we're interested in finding out how that works. We Actually, we have a few hypotheses, but we don't know why the chemical is changing the speed of the clock. The interesting thing is this chemical that we found, surprisingly, has exactly the same effects on circadian clocks across the kingdoms. It actually makes the clock run more slowly And it does that in plants, and then a year later it was found, after we discovered that, that it also has exactly the same effect in mice. And there's a lot of hypotheses about how it works, but as yet, we don't know.
1: Alex Webb. And if you've got any questions about plants and their circadian clocks, or any of the other subjects we're discussing this week, email us chris at scientist.com, tweet at Naked scientists, or find us on Facebook.
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kate Lamble. Just as we fall victim to biting insects that want to drink our blood, plants are assailed by sap suckers. And in the same way that mosquitoes give us malaria, some of these plant-attacking insects infect their hosts with bacterial and virus diseases too. Saskia Hoganhout is from the John Innis Centre in Norwich. So what sorts of insects do you study?
8: I work on sap-feeding insects. These are aphids, leafhoppers, planthoppers, psyllids, and they all have like a stinging mouth parts that can reach to the phloem and to the vascular system of the plant and drink the sap of the plant like so mosquitoes do. Yeah, uh, so blood. it's directly
0: analogous. They're sending yeah. a, a part of their mouth parts into the flesh right. and then into the, the vessels yes. of the plant.
8: Yes, and these vessels carry the sap stream of the plant, so the sugars that are transported to the leaves for me- metabolism. They are the bloodstream of the plant. And so the insects feed on this like mosquitoes do from blood.
0: Indeed and just as I mentioned in the same way that mosquitoes can transmit things like malaria and viruses in us these organisms pouncing on one plant and then another can, yes. can spread diseases.
8: Yes so the insects they spread the disease and some of the viruses uh, maybe most of the viruses they are completely dependent on the insects for spread in nature and some bacteria as well.
0: So what sorts of viruses are these?
8: They are in the plants and they carry it around by the insect, but they don't infect the insect. Other viruses, they circulate in the insect, but they don't amplify in the insect, but the insect can still carry them around. When and you say
0: amplify, you mean as in they get into the insect and then they grow and increase their yeah, number in increase the insect, number, so yeah. the infectious dose in the insect right. goes up.
8: Yes, and other viruses, they amplify even more, so they really use the insect also as a host for replication, and for multiplication well, and colonisation. that's extraordinary, because
0: this means you have a virus which is capable of infecting an insect's cells and growing in the insect. Yes. And infecting the cells of a plant, which is a very, very different beast. Yes. If that's the right word.
8: That's right. So they're very different hosts, and maybe the plant and the insect are much more different than, for example, a mosquito and a human.
0: So is it quite literally like malaria, where the sap sucker will land on the plant, drinks some fluids and because the virus is circulating in the plant fluids some gets into the insect and it then departs goes to another plant and when it drinks from that second plant it just happens to pass the virus on to the new recipient.
8: Yes so uh, depending on the virus this insect can acquire the virus and then transmit it immediately. Sometimes it takes longer so sometimes it takes 10 or 20 days or longer.
0: What do the plants do about this because given how widespread this sort of herbivory and plant parasitism is by sapsuckers and things, do the plants have a sort of immune response to stop this happening?
8: Yeah, that's an interesting question because the majority of the viruses, but also insects, are specialised. So they can only really infect certain plant species. And so it's often a very specialised interaction. But only a small fraction, like 10% of the insects species that are feed on the uh, the plant can feed on many different plant hosts and those are also often the most efficient factors of viruses because they can transmit a virus from one plant species to another and often from weeds that surround the crop fields to the crop what about in winter time?
0: Where do the viruses go? Because if you're living in a an insect that disappears in winter and a plant that withers and dies in winter, how do the viruses persist?
8: So sometimes they stay in the plants, like the weeds that surround crops or the crops that are maybe not there anymore, but the weeds stay around. And sometimes they stay in the insect factor as well, because the insect factor can overwinter and they stay quiet and they don't do much, but they still carry the virus. And when uh, the insect appears again in spring, then it can transmit uh, to new plants.
0: Do any of these viruses get into the genetic material of the plants? Because in the same way we see there are some viruses that lurk inside the genomes of humans, can they lurk inside the plant genome and then come out again periodically when they want to?
8: So uh, not many plant viruses do that, no. Uh, not many plant viruses. They, there are, as far as I know, not any but there are uh, bacteria that can do that. So some fragments of the bacteria can, can lurk inside the plant, and, uh, but these are not transmitted by insects.
0: Indeed, but there are bacteria that are transmitted by insects in, in the same way as we've outlined for these
8: viruses, yes. aren't there? Yeah, there are several species of bacteria, and some are also replicating, amplifying and colonising the insects, and some are only carried by the insect.
0: And what is the impact on the plants of catching these bugs?
8: They actually can be severely damaged by it. So they have stunting, chlorosis, streaks, they don't form seeds, they don't form flowers. And an oilseed rape, for example, that uh, in the UK can be infected by several viruses and they think it actually reduces yield by 30%.
0: Do they also render the plants susceptible to other infections? I keep bringing along human analogies, but obviously we can catch HIV this damages our immune system and renders us susceptible to infection by a whole lot of other low-grade things that wouldn't normally bother us. Does the same happen with plants, with these sorts of bugs?
8: Yes, actually, there's not many examples of viruses, but there are examples of bacteria, and some of which I work on, that suppress the immune response of the plant, and this plant becomes then more susceptible to insect factors, which then can also then acquire those white or the bacteria again and then spread them around.
0: And just to finish, what about the converse? Because there's evidence that if we pick up certain virus infections, paradoxically, we can end up with a better immune system. Do any of these viruses or bacteria enhance the health of the plant as a sort of payback for having been infected with them?
8: Yes, there are also examples in which they transmit. are infected by viruses and these viruses induce certain immune responses that are then inhibiting an infection of other pathogens and, or bacteria or maybe even sometimes if the virus is not transmitted by the insect they can also inhibit uh, herbivory.
0: Saskia Hogenhout from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. Thank you, Saskia.
8: Now,
1: it's well known that some plants depend on bushfires to make their seeds germinate, but how? Gavin Flamatti researches this question at the University of Western Australia and he explained to Chris how he's discovered the chemical in smoke that's responsible.
9: It's been known for a number of years that fire in a landscape, once that fire has gone through, when the next lot of rains come along, uh, you get this sudden regeneration of growth of the native species. And some researchers at South Africa worked out that there was actually chemicals in the smoke that were responsible for this effect. So I sort of came on board and we were looking at trying to work out what the actual chemical compounds were that were responsible for this effect. So when you say
0: something in the smoke was making this happen, it's not just that you burn everything out, the competition drops, and some seeds happen to be there that survive the burning and they grow. There is actually an active process which
9: is triggering seeds to grow, but only when there's smoke around Yeah, that's right. The researcher in South Africa, Johannes uh, de Langer, he was trying to uh, germinate this species that was only ever seen after a fire and he was trying everything he could think of to get it to to germinate and it just wouldn't. So then he he, uh, smoked a small area out in the landscape there and came back sort of 12 months later and lo and behold that species had germinated. So it worked out that there was something actually in the smoke that was responsible for this effect. So how did you attack that problem? What approach did you take to try to work out what was going on? Well, basically, uh, I mean, Johan Stelanger had worked out that if you bubble the smoke through water, you've got this product called smoke water, and that was active on the seeds as well. So we started with that. We uh, then would mix that with organic solvents and try and extract that compound out of the solution. And then just lots of chromatography. So we used a lot of ways to try and separate compounds until we were able to pin it down to one in particular compound.
0: So you're growing seeds that are dependent on whatever this smoke is to grow and then mixing them with different what fractions of what had been bubbled through the water. So you separated it into all the different chemicals until you got the one that does it.
9: Yeah, well, I mean, smoke contains over 4,000 compounds, so it was a, a big task. So it was multiple steps. Basically, we would just try and simplify the mixture to start with, and as you say, take a lot of fractions, test those with a particular species. We were actually using a, a particular lettuce species that... It would germinate fine in the light, but in the dark you'd only get about 30 to 40% germination. But then you give it the smoke compound, that would then bring that back up to 100%. The reason we used that was it was a quick turnaround of results, only two days, whereas some of the natives take up to six weeks. What are the chemicals that do it? Uh, we identified a compound, it belonged to a class of compounds called butenolides, and we've given it sort of the uh, trivial name of carakinilide. How does it work? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, We're we're still in the process of trying to work that out. Uh, We're now working with uh, molecular biologists and geneticists at uh, UWA and they're really uh, trying to dissect what, what the key proteins are that it's interacting with. I mean, one way they're looking at this is they're creating mutated plants that don't respond to the compound. So this particular plant we use called Arabidopsis is like the lab rat of the plant world and we're lucky enough that it responds to our compound And so what they've done is now transformed the plants so they don't respond. And then we're looking for what the key protein is that's missing. So it's quite a a neat way of doing it. What about this chemical makes it
0: particularly appropriate to do that job of triggering the plant to germinate? Because if there are 4,000
9: chemicals in smoke, as you've said, why did the plants pick that one? Uh, We're not sure. I mean, it's got some structural similarities to some other plant growth promoters. But we still haven't cracked how it's actually working yet. Apart from being academically really interesting to
0: know what it is that triggers things to grow after burning, will this be useful in any way? Could you use it to sustain, support or trigger growth or for conservation efforts?
9: Yeah, well, that, that's our, our goal at the moment, is trying to get a formulation that we can use in the field. At, at the moment, when we, when we spray it on the ground as a synthetic material, it just doesn't seem to have the same effect as when we smoke an area, and there's a whole range of reasons for that. It might be prone to oxidation. It, it seems to have some UV instability. But when it's present in the smoke mixture, there's other compounds there that are acting as sunscreens or antioxidants that are helping to stabilise it. So that's part of a big project we have at the moment is trying to work out, well, how can we uh, stabilise this and formulate it so it's more effective?
0: uwa's gavin flamatti and if you have any questions on how plants deal with adverse conditions or any of the other subjects that we've been discussing this week let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com you can also tweet at naked scientists or find us on our facebook page
1: and
10: finally hannah's been digging around to answer our question of the week this week we get to the bottom of a natural phenomenon 13 year old chloe de pinto wrote in with this
5: I've planted beans and have watched them grow and I would like to know what makes a plant grow upwards. I planted a bean in a pot and turned the pot upside down, but it still grew through the drain holes at the bottom of the pot. At the same time I planted a bean, waited till it germinated, then I turned the pot upside down. It then grew out to the side and up. Why is that? Why does it always go up?
10: So how do plants know to grow the way they do? Over to Dr Paul Robson, plant biologist at Aberystwyth University.
11: Plants grow upwards because they're trying to get to the light to begin photosynthesis. But most seeds germinate underground, where there's little light to follow. And so the plants actually use gravity to tell which way is up. They would grow upwards, even in complete darkness.
10: Clever plants. But since seeds have no vestibular system, like us humans using liquid in our inner ears to know which way is up, how do seeds and plants know which direction the sky lies in?
11: We know starch is important in sensing gravity, and to do this, plants package starch into structures called statoliths. The statoliths are denser than the plant cytoplasm in which they're suspended, so they sink due to gravity, and it's this movement that allows the plant to tell which way gravity is acting. Once the shoots have emerged from the soil, plants change their response again and mainly use light rather than gravity to determine where they grow. Incidentally, different parts of the plant respond differently to gravity, The shoots grow upwards, but the roots grow downwards, searching for water.
10: And are there any other experiments we can do at home to test out this powerful effect of gravity?
11: You can see this if you put a seed in the middle of a big pot and let it grow for a few days. Then if you turn the pot on its side and let it grow for a few more days, the shoots should curve upwards and the roots curve downwards. Plants do this because they lack basic locomotion, and so they're forced to grow towards whatever they need.
10: A lovely science test for the home. And if you have a bigger budget for experimentation...
4: Hi, I'm John Kiss from Oxford, Mississippi, and we sent some plants into space. All week long, we've been getting some exciting video downlinks from the International Space Station, which show some cool new ways that plants sense light based on these results we will be able to better grow crop plants in space and on other planets.
10: So it's a mixture of light and gravity cues that combine to direct plant growth. Darch seems important for sensing gravity, and the plant's surface senses light. And even in space, where there's only a small amount of gravity, plants can grow, and scientists are trying to understand exactly how. Moving over to illuminate our next topic, Gerard from Chatteris in Cambridgeshire got in touch with this.
7: Chatteris has just replaced all their old streetlights. They also removed ten percent of them. The new lights are on taller posts, casting white light further than the old amber lighting. The lights have been so bright that my tulips grew leaning over to the new lamp at the front of a neighbour's garden. It took several days of bright sun for them to stand erect. So, how does new artificial light? Impact nature.
10: So are new lighting technologies affecting our natural environment? Send us your thoughts to studio at the Naked You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page, or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at NakedScientists.com
0: slash forum.
1: Hannah Critchlow.
0: And that is it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Safian Kamoon, Alex Webb, Phil Howell, Gavin Flamatti and Saskia Hogenhout. Thank you also to Kate Lamble for joining me. The production this week was by Dominic Ford. Next week we'll be illuminating the science of gallium nitride LEDs, light-emitting diodes, which might soon be used to make much better and more energy-efficient light bulbs. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.